Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the multi-cloud, multi-vendor approach at the Army, C-suite alignment to drive your organization's data strategy, and modernizing hiring at CIA. It's Tuesday, February 7th, 2023. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast where you'll hear the latest news and trends facing government leaders. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Billy Mitchell. Top cybersecurity leaders from government and industry are coming to the Zero Trust Summit later this month. You'll hear how agencies are adopting Zero Trust and modernizing their security postures. It's all happening at the International Spy Museum on February 23rd from 9 a.m. to 2 p.m. You can learn more and register now at fedscoop.com attend. The Army is currently executing its unified network plan with the goal of becoming multi-domain capable force by 2028. The Army will support that network with a multi-cloud, multi-vendor hybrid approach. Here to discuss that and more is retired Air Force Lieutenant General Bill Bender, Senior Vice President for Customer Excellence and Government Relations at Lidos, and former Air Force Chief Information Officer. Bill, thanks so much for joining me today. Let's Great start to be with you. Yeah, you as well. And let's start with that Army's multi-cloud, multi-vendor approach. How can that enable data sharing across the enterprise and to the tactical edge? Well, uh, you know, it's a great question. I read the article uh, by Lieutenant General Morris and what he had to say and couldn't agree more with, you know, sort of the concepts involved. The, the one that I always have talked about going back to the mention of being the CIO in the Air Force, I call it the golden rule, basically. You really need to, from the very beginning, uh, get everybody in agreement around open architecture, non-proprietary in nature, and government-owned data rights. And uh, when when that's sort of the north star of every discussion you're having as it gets to multi-cloud, multi-vendor, as the Army is proposing, uh, I, I think then at least there's a common ground from which to uh, start, you know, to work. In terms of the hybrid architecture that is being recommended by the Army, it, it kind of depends on so many different variables. Um, and that, of course, is alluded to um, throughout the article. But at the same time, he says, let's not overcomplicate it. And I couldn't agree more. But ultimately, taking into account some of the, you know, sort of do you have infrastructure available at the tactical edge is going to make a difference. Uh, is it something that you're going to have to take with you, aka a server in a box, and is it transportable on the back of a C-130, since I'm an Air Force guy? Uh, is it man-pack transportable, and so on and so forth. So the, all these variables have to come into uh, consideration. And then finally, not all architectures are created equal, meaning, meaning you know, to do what we're asking uh, in the as envisioned by the Army, really, it truly needs to be a plug and play approach. So a systems of systems interoperability required. The good news is the technology uh, will allow that, especially with software defined everything. Uh, the challenge of course is, you know, sort of the business processes to getting to that end state. And Bill, so thinking about things from a security standpoint, how does the same multi-cloud and multi-vendor approach also help? Well, I, I think again, going you know first to the to the golden rule, you'll have established standards then within that architecture, and uh, you know a, a good example that comes to mind is there's a lot of discussion today. Can we design zero trust into cloud infrastructure? In fact, I, I read an art article recently, 
concerning the joint warfighting cloud capability and the CSPs that have been identified um, in that AWS, Google, Microsoft, Oracle. So big investment, the question becomes, can we sort of bake in zero trust security? I think the answer is most definitely. And I think once we've gotten ourselves to an environment that has baked in zero trust, then we have the added advantage of making it really difficult for any would-be adversary with uh, the security advantages that come with just sort of an overarching hide in plain sight, that multi-cloud, multi-venture, the, the ability to rapidly transition between environments and, uh, and tool sets, depending on what becomes at risk if there were to be you know, some kind of uh, infraction. So that ability to rapidly transition between clouds and vendors uh, is, is an added advantage to zero trust being baked in. So as organizations like the Army move on this journey towards multi-cloud, what do those organizations need to take into consideration to make sure that they're successful? And are there any sorts of indicators that they are being effective in executing on that strategy? Yeah, um, I, I, I definitely think that's the question that we should be asking our, ourselves in government and in industry in our conversations back and forth as we sort of level set on the problems that are facing the government. Um, first, cloud isn't right for everything. I mean, I think that uh, IT leaders in government should question any vendor recommending a total lift and shift. Um, instead, it should be a more nuanced approach uh, that brings in other attributes and considerations. Number one would be affordability. Right. A second consideration has got to be speed of transition from, you know, on-prem environments today to cloud environments in the future. And, you know, Lieutenant General Morrison made this point in his article about needing to rely on containerization and virtualization and some of the other, you know, sort of software defined tool sets that allow transition if and when it makes sense. And then there's more of a cultural challenge around government uh, over-provisioning their IT in a way that is, you know, sort of not cost affordable in the, the world we're living in today. So that, you know, you have to account for, no kidding, the nuances of the mission that you're doing. I use a cost, uh, you know, um, a business process cost where if we're generating uh, paychecks through the DOD comptroller to everybody in the US military uh, once a month, do you really need nine nines of reliability in that system 31 days a month? The, the answer is probably not. You could actually focus on the 12 hours or 24 hour period in which you know, you're gonna actually rely on it. And there, there are equivalencies to that sort of example uh, where it comes to mission. So if you need to be there absolutely, then you need nine nines of reliability. If it's something that's occasional, that you can, you have the time available to actually assess when, if and when you're going to need it, then you can provision. And, and the last thing is, you know, how do you get there? It's really around industry and government working together on um, affordable and executable uh, service level agreements. And so, you know, it's like, 
working to really assess how is it going to be used in practice and making it manageable. You mentioned just very briefly about how do you know whether you're being effective? I think you know, one would be progress that accelerates in speed over time, say in your transition to the cloud. It shouldn't be, you know, a slog every day at the same pace. It should be as we pick up more experience, have better tools available, have a more mature environment that progress accelerates over time. It's the ability to move between uh, cloud service providers and environments, as we suggested, as well as uh, between the different warfighting domains, land, sea, air, and space, and finally, at the different levels of warfare, strategic, operational, tactical, all of that has to be done rapidly and seamlessly. So measuring in meaningful uh, terms of speed, scale, um, and security are a good way to measure that. And with so much focus and pressure on moving to the cloud, seemingly, how do you decide the, the, what those capabilities are and when when that this should happen, that they should stay on-prem versus being moved into a, a private or public cloud? And, you know, who is ultimately the one that should be engaged in making that decision? Well, ultimately, government decides how, you know, it's their mission in, in, in order to define uh, what mission success is first and foremost, and to have the confidence in the warfighting domains that they're going to be able to be successful. So ultimately, the the final decision rests with government, and and I think that's the way it should be and always will be. On the other hand, I think increased transparency and trust is needed between requirements developers. That's the acquisition side of the government. Uh, obviously, an open and transparent conversation continuous between their mission operators, those who are going to deliver the mission, and finally with industry. And so uh, you, you may recall, uh, because we've worked with each other in the past, when I was the Air Force CIO, uh, every opportunity I got, I talked about the uh, necessity, really, of better public uh private or in this case, government industry relationships. And so uh, that is improving over time. I'm at Lidos for five years now and we see uh, a much better transparency and communication with, with our government leaders, which is great. And I think it really comes down to the balance between mission requirements, affordability and complexity. And everything has to be sort of thought through those lenses and then kind of get to the Venn diagram of what everybody can agree with is, is both executable, affordable, and most importantly, uh, is going to succeed at the government's uh, complex mission set. Great. Well, Lieutenant General Bender, thanks as always, and thanks so much for your time today. Yeah, great to uh, talk to you. Thanks for the opportunity. You too. You can learn more about the Army's hybrid cloud approach at fedscoop.com. Coming on Thursday's episode of the Daily Scoop podcast, Agile Innovation at the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. USPTO Chief Information Officer Jamie Holcomb joins me to discuss how his organization built out software factories that are speeding the development of programs from years to weeks. That show debuts Thursday afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your podcasts. The Defense Information Systems Agency has a new data strategy implementation plan, which calls for DISA to leverage data as a center of gravity. The I-Plan, as it's called, places a key focus on data management. Joining me today is Rob Carey, President of Cloudera Government Solutions and former Principal Deputy Chief Information Officer for the Department of Defense. 
Rob, thanks so much for joining me today. DISA's strategy lays out four lines of effort, data architecture and government, governance, advanced analytics, data culture, knowledge management. How will they guide internal data practices and help DISA become a more data-driven organization? So uh, thanks for having me, Billy. So, you know, the, the lines of effort are uh, actually very good, very, very aligned to moving uh, that big organization towards being data-driven. Um, within that are going to be um, alignment, not in the data organization. The C-suite alignment is sort of crucial to getting at those internal goals and objectives because no one person owns all these problems, right? So there's got to be this crosstalk and not that there isn't a crosstalk, but in the plan, it sort of wasn't as evident as it could have been maybe that says, hey, this guy owns this, this guy owns this, this guy owns this. And there is now movement forward with the entire IT leadership team to those common objectives, right? So, so though, that just eases the implementation because there is no surprises there. You're overtly walking forward locked arms and not like having to check in with somebody that owns a component of the end state. So you mentioned that C-suite, and uh, I'm curious, who are those people that need to be involved at the C-suite level internally to help execute on the goals of the plan? So, you know, obviously, I'm sure that uh, uh, the director, uh, the commander is is involved, but, but think of the CIO, the CISO, and the CDO really in lockstep here to move downstream and move this plan forward, because we know what the CIO traditional duties are, you know, relatively new on the scene is the CDO, right? So, so they're going to work the policy items associated with types of data, who sees what, how do we prosecute new technologies to create data driven decisions, things like that. And then of course the CISO, his concern is going to be obviously network security and information security. So those three people have got to play and move this together and it becomes really a, a, it isn't so much a data plan, it's DISA's mission plan moving forward, right? The mission of what DISA does rides on the back of the network and rides, the information that comes from it is driven from the data. So as you become data-driven, these three organizations and their staffs must be aligned to those common objectives. Yeah, I think that's a great point. How does an organization like DISA know that it's on track to reach those uh, those eventual goals of the data strategy? And what are some of the key benchmarks along the way that allows DISA to, to know that it's moving in the right direction? Yeah, so they they, they produced a, a high-level schedule in their plan, and there may be an internal schedule that is very detailed and an external schedule that they published that is, is not... Uh, that's okay. But but at the end of the day, you know, you want to build a little, test a little, build a little, test a little, right, in, in my opinion. So I would be looking for proofs of concept, right? Do we have the design of a, a, a an effort that would illustrate success across a certain functional field? Maybe it's logistics, maybe it's financial management, uh, maybe it's some of the R&D things going on, maybe it's cyber, right? That we have then exercised our three C-suite members and their teams to come to a common outcome and that the efforts are aligned and we produced a repeatable uh, solution. So, so those kinds of intermediate milestones, they can be lots of things, uh, Billy, but at the end of the day, those intermediate milestones tell you you're on track or, or they also uncover 
where maybe you, there was a pothole in the process that you didn't see before, right? So then you tackle that and, and keep moving. So when you see the beginning and the end, there's generally lots of stuff in the middle that has to happen in order for the end to occur on time and on budget. And obviously, this isn't just about those C-suite leaders. It's about the the people across the organization in all different ranks that need to be able to use data and and kind of abide by the strategy. So how can organizations like DISA think about upskilling and developing their workforce to make sure they're equipped to actually take action on such a strategy? Yeah, that's a great question. That was one of my, uh, I've seen this across government, is that there is not, just like with cyber 10 years ago, 12 years ago, there were not a a plethora of cyber people to then tackle the cyber problem. So as agencies pivot to become data-driven, this is no different, right? How do you educate the workforce on becoming data-driven, right? Are the tools able to be spread across more folks, or is it just those data engineers and data scientists that they have, which we know nobody has enough of, right? Industry doesn't have enough of them. Uh, uh, Government doesn't have enough of them. So, So there's two efforts that I would think need to happen is, A, educating the workforce at a broader level on what does data do for you, right? I mean, and then what are those manifestations of data that, you know, help individuals move their component of the mission forward. Now, interestingly enough, when we talk about um, the education part, you, you almost are trying to lead them with the, is the end state commoditization of data? And what I mean by that is how many people can sit down and put their fingers on a keyboard and engage AI and ML, for example? Not very many, right? Now, are we working on, is DISA working on, is the government working on commoditization of data, engaging more people to uh, prosecute information and insight that's in data to answer questions that they have in their little turf? Um, that's really part of the answer is you have to be working on commoditization of data, then broadening the application of, of that tool to those folks, and then suddenly more and more people are able to actually answer their own questions, right? They can do their own plug-in play in some application that is connected to, let's say it's finance data, logistics data, acquisition data, whatever. Um, You can begin to get yourself uh, your own insights. Today, somebody gets tagged to go perform analytics on a set of data and then reports back. So it's very um, stovepiped, if you will. Well, Rob, it's always a pleasure and I really appreciate your time today. Sure, Billy. Thanks for having me. You can learn more about DISA's data strategy implementation plan at fedscoop.com. Top decision makers from government and industry will be at IT Mod Talks next month discussing the ongoing efforts to modernize federal IT. It's happening at the Ritz-Carlton in Pentagon City on March 15th. You can learn more and register now at fedscoop.com slash attend. The CIA has a new online hiring portal with the goal of modernizing and streamlining the agency's hiring process. The web-based platform is called MyLink and launched at the beginning of the new year. Joining me now is Terry Randall, Deputy Chief of the Talent Acquisition Office at CIA. Terry, thanks so much for joining me. Let's start for the, with the need for this virtual hiring portal. How would this help modernize and streamline the agency's hiring process? Well, first, thanks very much for reaching out and getting in touch regarding our new system. Um, we, 
have long known um, that we have been challenged by long processing times from application to clearance, and that has been a deterrent for many folks to pursue opportunities with us. So we need to stay competitive with the private sector to hire the mission-critical talent that we need. So we recently modernized and streamlined our process to one in which individuals who are U.S. citizens can express interest in CIA careers by submitting a resume and providing some basic information using a tool which we call MyLink. Um, so we recognized that we need to recruit the next generation of CIA officers by going where the people are, which is online. Uh, so to connect with top talent and share our global mission. Um, so that new technology tool, which is called MyLink, helps improve the candidate experience. Um, and it, it's also more familiar to a new digital savvy generation of candidates. So we're really trying to make it easier and more straightforward for people to go to CIA.gov and to navigate to the MyLink tool. They can indicate up to four different occupations that they're interested in and submit a resume. So you only need to do this once, which we think is a great way for our recruiters to get the information that we need. Um, I think it's also important to point out that once the uh, resume is submitted, that's not yet an application, um, our recruiters are going to sort through the resumes that we receive to identify the ones who meet agency requirements. We will then reach out to prospective candidates and applicants to discuss the positions that we have available. And if we see that the person has the skills and abilities that we're looking for, we would invite them to submit a formal application. So all of this is intended to reduce the time it takes people to come on board. Um, we have rigorous screening um, on the back end of our process, um, but we know that um, we can streamline that front end by lowering the burden on the candidate at the outset. So what we're really trying to do is attract more people to apply and widen that pool of talented candidates who want to join the agency, um, and from that we can select the ones that really have the skills that we need. Terry, you hinted at some of the near-term and long-term hiring goals that the CIA might have, and curious how this portal will help the agency to achieve those. So we need to recruit talent from all backgrounds, all walks of life. You may not know, but our mission demands that we hire for about 100 different occupations, uh, which each require different skill sets. So we need folks who have foreign language capabilities, data scientists, analysts, uh, and support officers who help us carry out our mission. Um, most importantly, right now, one of our highest priorities is to attract technically proficient talent. Um, we recognize that big data and cyber are kind of the, the new generation of challenges to our national security mission. Uh, we are interested in folks with expertise in emerging tech like AI and ML. So those are all of great interest to us, but we're also looking for folks with softer skills, uh, intellectual curiosity, interest in international affairs, uh, experience overseas. Um, we're also looking for individuals who are looking for meaningful work, 
um, with interesting problems. We're looking for folks with practical skills, the ability to multitask, flexibility, problem solving, innovations, all of those kinds of softer skills. So my link is just the first step in helping us identify uh, people with those skills. It's the follow-up phone calls and uh, exchanges that we have with candidates that's going to help us better understand the skills that they bring uh, to the mission. And of course, MyLink is just one tool that we're using to connect with the public. So we um, have outreach efforts. We uh, attend hundreds of career fairs a year. Um, the agency just launched a public broadcast. You might have heard the Langley Files. We had an episode with one of our recruiters who was interviewed. Um, we also um, have updated our CIA.gov website. We advertise on streaming services. We have an Instagram account, an Onion site. We're all over social media. So all of this is our attempt to um, kind of better share the CIA message with the general public. And then what about the people who are currently CIA employees um, and, and upskilling them, um, especially in the recruiting and human capital staff? How will MyLink change that sort of internal talent acquisition and development process internally? We have an entirely separate process inside the agency for training our officers. Training is um, a very big emphasis within the agency, and we have an internal uh, training program with a, an entire set of schools that are dedicated to each of the skill sets. Um, in terms of external candidates, which is what we deal with here in talent acquisition, um, the MyLink tool allows us to get to know candidates better before they go ahead and submit that full application package. We know in the past that the requirement to submit a full package would frustrate many interested candidates, only to find out that we had met our hiring needs for that year. So um, we, we are trying to modernize that process and with the MyLink tool, we can keep that resume on hand for a few months and we can revisit um, as our hiring needs change as the year goes on. And to close out, what have you learned uh, while implementing this new hiring portal? And are there any best practices or lessons learned from the process that you can pass along? Well, we've learned that we really needed to make our process more responsive to the talent pool that we're trying to attract. We needed to make those tools more user-friendly and um, help us compete with uh, the private sector for these um, exquisite skill sets that our mission depends on. So as I mentioned, the conversations that we're having with candidates allow us to get to know them better, to understand how their knowledge, skills, and abilities fit with agency needs. But in addition, it gives us extra insight into their motivation in applying to the agency or even skill sets that they didn't include on that initial resume package. And that allows us to find the best fit. Um, and it may not even have been something that they initially thought about when they submitted that resume. So that is something that we're finding as um, kind of a best practice. Um, and we're just a month into it and we're already learning a lot about our prospective uh, workforce of the future. Well, Terry, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today and I uh, really appreciate your time. Thank you so much.
The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all podcast platforms. If you've already rated the podcast on your platform of choice, thanks so much. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people to find it. The Daily Scoop podcast was a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher helped put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. We'll talk to you again Thursday afternoon. Until then, I'm your host, Billy Mitchell. Thanks so much for listening.